Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. Okay, we are away. Your audio just did something weird then. Yeah. Is it okay? It's alright. Yeah, like I can hear it. It sounds fine. It just it did something weird. Anyway. I continue. Put- I threw something onto the little mixer box thing. Oh, yeah, classic. Yeah, that's just complete disrespect. The other day I was trying to figure out why I couldn't get my mouse to work uh, on my laptop at home, and I realized it was because my Bluetooth mouse was in the other room and a cat was lying on it. So I was just <laughs> holding a button down the whole time and I couldn't get my fucking computer to work. Amazing. It was really frustrating. That's cool. How's the week been? You've extended in lockdown forever. Yeah, that's just a fucking bit of a kick in the dick, really. Um, I mean, we all kind of knew it was coming, uh, but another four weeks in Canberra, which pushes out to like the 15th or 17th of October or something like that, uh, which means we've got to postpone more competitions, which is just a real fucking, yeah, shit time, really. Just a bit bummed about the whole thing. Like, I am not an anti-lockdown person because I think it is the only way we're going to actually get out of this to give everyone time to get vaccinated and not end up with a ton of really fucking sick people overwhelming our hospitals. But, uh, yeah, I'm not stoked about it. <laughs> it's a bit shit. Uh, but, you know, we'll survive. Yeah, the, the the annoying ripple effect of it all, like how it affects the business and then how it affects the people that rely on the business and then how mm. that affects this and that. And, that. and it's like, yeah, it's... Yeah, man. And I'm the just... The far-reaching effects is... Yeah, I think yeah. I'm just tired at this point, you know, like it's just the fatigue of dealing with the stress of it all is just getting to me a little bit. Uh, but So what are you doing to stay busy? Uh, I'm like, I'm still coaching people. I'm still programming and doing those sort of things. I'm working on redoing some of our like content stuff and things like that. But uh-huh. we're also like doing a ton of stuff around the house and things like that. So it's it's a combination of juggling being a parent for a child that you can't get rid of um because what they don't tell you about parenting is that actually sending them to school is just an excuse not to have them in the house for six hours a day or whatever it is uh so yeah not having that just makes everything happen a bit slower in our lives but yeah. uh yeah we're you know doing shit around the house i'm spending a ton of time on the bike which is good uh the weather's nice which is also nice so mm-hmm. it's not all fucking misery and shit shows but there's a certainly a reasonable percentage of that Yes, and staying very caffeinated, thanks to our good friends at Prison Coffee Co. Yeah, I am slamming through coffee in my house. Uh, currently alternating between drinking black coffee and drinking like milky espressos as well, uh, mm-hmm. which is great. It just means by about midday, I've got so much caffeine in my body that I have no real use for because it's not like I'm getting up really early or you know, any issue like that. I just like being highly caffeinated. It's good. Amazing. Use the code PeakSpeak. Get that yourself code, a juicy yes. discount. Yep. And they're shipping every day at the moment. I think if you order before 11 a.m., they're shipping out same day because I think they're getting hammered, which is great. (laughs) Everyone's stuck at home buying coffee. Yeah, I I think that's basically what's happening, which is great for them. Mm. 
Uh, so we're going to continue our discussion about bench press today, are we not? Yes, we are, and um, had some exciting benching on the weekend up here at Ground Zero, which was yeah, really what cool. The fuck? We had um, we had big coops. Andrew Cooper bench three hundred six point five, uh, which pushes his already all time Australian record up by six and a half kilos, but also puts him number ten in the world all time. Is that uh, why you took the six and a half? Yeah, because because of pounds, there were like three people who had three hundred six point one. That that must be whatever six seventy or something like that. Yeah, yeah um so yeah the 306.5 gave us gave us number 10 and then we went for 310.5 which would have pushed him to number seven i think or number eight would have pushed him up another couple of of rankings um the next one is 320 um but what happened was he missed his opener so he did his opener which is 280 and his bum came off the bench Uh, so he got he got reds on his opener and then we had to make the call do we risk going straight to the three three oh six, knowing that he's last in the flight, and if he went for the three ten on the fourth, he's going to have a very short amount of time, mm. and it was a big flight, so he had heaps of time between his main attempts. Um, so we made the conservative call to, to stay at the opener and do two eighty again, which he did, and then he did that three oh six, which go on my Instagram and have a look. It was really fucking easy. Yeah, fucking hell, man! It looks so much just cleaner and easier than. His last was at 300 or whatever it was that just the whole thing looked a little bit more put together. And some of that seems a little bit to me like it was, um, he was just better executed, right? Like it was all just technique and (coughs) excuse me, execution on the day, at least from an external standpoint. Yeah. I I would say the opposite. I would say that the 300 wasn't representative of how he normally benches. Yeah. Because so the 300 was his second attempt at 300 because he was too complacent with the first attempt. That's right. Yeah. So like, if you watch our first 300 that we did in the gym before that, that previous comp, it was perfect. It was like the 306 he did. Yeah. I don't think I watched a lot of him benching prior to that. Yeah, which I mean, it's me. I don't post anything. He doesn't post that much either. So um, it's also bench press. It's sometimes pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. So on the, on the comp day, his first attempt at three hundred was perfect. He was just too complacent. And so on the second one, uh, yeah, on his third attempt, which was his second at three hundred, he just went ham with it and it got a bit messy there. Um, but I mean, like it was good good to come back. The the weirdest thing is people who comment on it be like being like really clean pe- bench press and yeah, like a decent pause too. It's like cool. We've satisfied you, random internet person. Thank you for your validation. <laughs> it's, it's I because it's like saying good depth too on a squat. It's like yeah, it the passed. rule is that yeah, you hit yeah. depth. The yeah. rule is that you pause at the bench. It's like yeah, yeah. it's that's the assumed part of it. Like yeah. if, if the lift was successful, you've ticked all <laughs> of these markers because that's how the rules work. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Yeah, people are funny like that. Their mm. ability to um, justify absolute bullshit coming out of their mouths in a way that they have no quant- no qualifications to talk about always amazes me uh-huh. the, so i so i really um really believe that andrew's an incredibly imp- impressive bencher mm. um and i struggle with um i struggle with what i'm about to say i think the most impressive bencher or the most accomplished bencher uh, in australia is the other guy that i had benching on the day caleb voice um, he benched benched two sixty at um, one. That's just yeah. a little slip back to New Zealand, Thomas. Um, he he benched two sixty at one hundred five kilos, but he's like the Ed Cohen of bench press in Australia. Like he has, if you weigh between eighty kilos and one ten, you have to beat him because he has all yeah. of those records. Yeah, right. And spoiler alert, you're not going to beat him. Like no one's touching those numbers for a long time. He's a yeah. phenomenal bencher. Um, so I'd say he's the most accomplished. Andrew's the strongest. Yeah, cool. 
It's nice to know that you've got a very solid stable of bench presses under your wings there, Thomas. Yes. Well, it's relevant to this conversation. Let's keep talking about bench. I believe we finished yes. up with leg drive. Yes, because I, th I think initially we were talking about uh, flat foot versus on mm. your toes. And yeah. uh, I know that I, I took the side of generally teaching flat-footed and explaining how on your toes benching works and giving people the option to explore it but generally i default to teaching people flat-footed if they don't know bench press at all or, or have had no concept of a power lifting style setup yep 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 i'm in a funny spot with my own training at the moment where i spend a great period of time um doing uh benches just you know not competition style just lying down and kind of benching yeah. Um, and I did it all flat footed and now I can't seem to go back to up on my toes. Like I much prefer a flat footed bench now. Um, yeah. so I'm, I'm sticking with it for the time being. Yeah. Nice. Um, all right. Where to start this conversation then? I think the, the big thing to remember when it comes to flat foot versus up on your toes is that the actual mechanical principle of leg drive is the same regardless, which mm. is what we're chasing hip extension. We're trying to push the hips back towards the shoulders. Um, and remembering that really helps demystify some of the cueing around it. Like a lot of people just think heels down. Heels down doesn't do shit. You're pushing your heels down with the objective of driving your hips back towards your shoulders. Yeah. Um, if we can understand that, then it's going to help us solve a lot of problems on bench press when it comes to bum lifting off the bench, when it comes to getting the most out of your arch and your leg drive and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is often missed with leg drive and the application of leg drive in a heels up position like on your toes is people sort of jam themselves into that position and then kind of assume that leg drive is happening because mm. it feels really tight and you feel like it's really uncomfortable but for a lot of people what you're actually doing is just stuffing yourself into what's a, an uncomfortable but not necessarily particularly active position and in the end like for this to be effective it needs to be an active position your legs need to be actively driving in order to get that it's not just a case of stuff yourself into the position and and you just stay there you know the same for upper back tension in the squat it doesn't it's not just a case of you squashing yourself into that position using the barbell as that tool to get you there and then just hoping for the best you have to be able to actively contribute to that yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing about the squat. It's, it's the difference between creating tightness and just feeling tightness. Yeah, for sure. You know, you're trying to create this like uh, functional tightness. Um, the, the only thing I'd say on top of that is that it's really hard to measure the benefit of the mechanical advantage versus the structural advantage that comes with an arch and leg drive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is sometimes a case for pulling the legs further back than where the legs can be used to drive if it means achieving an arch that then makes the overall bench press stronger. And so like the, the example that you're gonna see of this, think of the really petite, flexible females that can get their, their legs yeah. basically behind their, or under yeah. their shoulders. At, in that sort of position, you're not using your legs. Like no. you're not gonna create leg drive. You still need to engage them to create stability. Yes. Um, but you're not actually getting much true power from your legs. However, if we shift that person to a position where they can get power, they probably sacrifice their arch so much that they lose kilos off the bench press. And it's really, sometimes it can be difficult to find the the happy medium or which way you should lean more towards with a particular lifter. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I, and I totally agree. And it seems to almost exclusively be those very petite, 
people and it's not exclusively women but it seems to certainly be Mm. more often than not very small women who are incredibly flexible like that the thing from my point of view that i default to is making sure people actually understand first and foremost how to engage their legs before we start having a discussion about where do my feet go or how do i change that position or like you know what what modifications are we taking there because sometimes it can be someone who like you said is stuffed right back up into that really tight arch super big arch position that by moving their feet forward would be sacrificing it but they're actually not even thinking about engaging your legs and so sometimes Mm -hmm. you can actually just get two birds and one stone with that and actually teach them the process of being able to engage your legs um when it comes to that do you have any differences in how you talk about like cueing or thinking about the process of engaging your legs for a flat-footed versus toes up or because I know you mentioned before that the, the principle is the same and I, I totally mm. agree. We're aiming for hip extension, but do you cue it differently? Do you, do you use different drills? How do you describe it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily cue it differently. It more comes down to, for me, um, the setup process. I would teach a slightly different setup for flat foot versus up on the toes. Yeah, I think um, we briefly touched on this last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I we definitely did. Um, that that for me is the only major difference. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, look exactly the same really. I think some people need to be reminded with the uh, heels up position to be out, to be actively driving down and forward as opposed to just down like yep. you said before. The analogy I use pretty regularly for everyone is to imagine you're sitting on just like an office chair and thinking about pushing yourself backwards because mm. that's where you're going to be able to get that hip extension position that is hip extension without just lifting your ass up off the bench because i think for a lot of people they hear leg drive as a concept and immediately want to push straight down into the ground yeah and don't necessarily get any benefit out of actually transferring that force into the bar itself yeah Yep, yep, yep. Um, this will segue nicely to, to a few questions that I have and, and maybe some like myths that we can, or not myths, but things that we can um, demystify. Uh, I think the technical term in uh, podcast circles is unpack. Unpack, unpack yes. Unpack some things. Let's yeah. unpack some things. Um, so uh, when it comes to leg drive, a common mantra that I will repeat to people is like the best leg drive is a leg drive you can't see. You should be engaging leg drive before you unrack and it should just stay on the whole time. But with that, for me, comes um, I teach a, a light touch on the chest. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess that was one question that I had. What, where do you stand in terms of light touch versus sinking and heaving? Do you have opinions on this? Uh, yeah, look, I'm pretty much in exactly the same uh, camp as you are when it comes to this sort of thing. I think the best bench press pause is one that's touching your shirt not actually touching your chest Mm -hmm. uh and that's sort of one of the ways i like cueing that as an idea uh because it helps people understand what you mean because a lot of people will be like oh yeah it's not sinking at all but they're getting still just that little bit of sink as it touches uh and i'm the same when it comes to leg drive i used to be a real big sink and heave because like everyone in my era grew up fucking watching dan green Green. (laughs) and dan green is an absolute weapon when it comes to the old sink and heave bench press um I very quickly realized I'm not Dan Green, uh, nor am I even like a small percentage of Dan Green when it comes to any physical measure. So uh, instead, I opted to just be better at bench pressing instead of trying to be like Dan Green. Um, and yeah, that was the biggest thing for me was I found that it's just more stable, it's more predictable, it's more repeatable. Uh, and I think that's the biggest problem from my point of view when it comes to that sink and heave is that 
people aren't, that aren't Dan Green, and I'm yet to see many people do it as well as he does, uh, but a lot of people try and emulate something like that and actually just do it in a way that completely butchers their bench press. Like it ends up being this sink into this really floppy, loose position in the bottom heaving it off your chest catching it in the middle of the bench and just having absolutely no drive whatsoever because all you've Mm. done is like punch it with your stomach to that midpoint and not actually driven any strength through it so yeah i'm a light touch tight legs all the time kind of guy yeah 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 yeah. and like when you when you draw a comparison to another lift it's it's a bit of a no-brainer like would you want to be coming out of the bottom of the squat completely relaxed yeah. Would you want to be trying to generate as much force as you break the floor on a deadlift completely relaxed? That's the equivalent to letting everything go on the chest. So yeah. I, I'm in team tight touch. The interesting thing is like the actual pra- practical application of this when you're teaching someone or, or like in, when you deal with the reality of um, people lifting weights, you know, like as people's arms get beat up and they're getting this hideous arm pain when they go and bench, sometimes they have to sink. Like yeah. it, when you get closer to competition, if the lifter cannot um you know perform the skill of a light touch is it worth shaving kilos off their bench for the competition to make it look a bit prettier it's like no yeah, save that for after the comp. technical model yeah keep keep working towards it as you you know continue to train but at, at some point or sometimes there's going to be a point where you have to uh, relinquish the idea of perfection to, for the sake of putting more weight on the bar and that point is going to be training towards a competition and that's where it's the idea of letting uh perfect get in the way of good enough yeah right like it's it's having a gold standard for the technical model that you have for each movement and then also appreciating that no one's ever going to reach that gold standard because if they do there's probably not enough weight on the bar Mm -hmm. and we probably need to try a little bit harder to push that and like you said sometimes you got to make compromises yeah for sure um so the next the next couple of questions that kind of come with this uh touch point on the chest and bar path i think bar path we should start with because it's probably one of the most um i don't know not contested but there's a lot of differing opinions on what the bar path on a bench press should be um and for me touch point is related to that but we'll come back to touch point what do you think the bar path what what do you teach or understand around the bar path on bench i almost exclusively avoid mentioning anything about the path of the bar because (laughs) i think it's a complete waste of time for most people because the bar path is a secondary result of the process and if you've got the process right then it doesn't matter what the bar path's doing it'll work because all the other boxes have been ticked i think too many people and i certainly fell into this uh idea a little bit i think some of it's a carryover from shirted benching the discussion around bar path is because in a shirt there's like a very specific groove that each shirt is going to that's going to be individual to each shirt and how it fits you and the position of it and all of those sort of things that some shirts require more tuck and a more like loopy bar path those sort of things for a raw bencher i think talking about your bar path is just a great way to end up with uh hypochondriac-esque approach to your bench press technique because suddenly some tiny deviation on your auto bar path tracking app sends you into a conniption about the fact that your bench press is going to go down uh-huh. yeah i i think i think there can be some merit to talking about bar path but i'm i'm pretty firmly with you on this one as well yeah um, and the, that, the, that was me hyper hyperbolizing yeah uh, about it like i i don't never talk about it but 
I'm probably going to avoid talking about yes. it if I don't have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the big issues that we have with technical stuff in lifting is that a lot of our technical rhetoric is outdated. And even if it's not a lot of our technical uh, rhetoric is um, reverse engineered by looking at a lot of you know, mm. top lifters or looking at lifters near the top of the game. Um, and so like if you're watching a lot of bench presses doing max bench pressing, what you're going to notice is a bar path that tends to travel backwards off the chest yeah, and either travel in a pretty diagonal straight line or a slight J hook back where it goes back off the chest and then up. And then it would be reasonable from there to conclude that that's the correct bar path of the bench. But in reality, like John said, this is a byproduct of the underlying mechanics. Yes. The most efficient bar path is always going to be a straight line up and down. Um, the reality of trying to maintain a straight line up and down in a bench press is near impossible because of what we talked about last week, which is keeping the shoulders on. So like yeah. once we lock the shoulders in, if the shoulders stayed locked in, the bar would go straight up when you press it. The reality is, is as you press up, your shoulders tend to let go. They tend to protract a little bit. They tend to elevate a little bit and your body is going to accommodate balance. And so to balance the bar at lockout, your arms need to be straight up and down. So if your scaps have elevated, they're now closer towards your head. It makes sense for the bar to travel in that way. If you reverse engineer this and you tell every lifter, push the bar back off the chest, do a J bar path, you're teaching them to let go of their shoulders. And that's where yes. it becomes a negative thing. However, if a lifter is struggling to maintain their shoulder position and losing it in the other direction, it might actually help them keep their shoulders on by directing the, the, the bar to go in a particular way. That very, 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 very rarely happens. Yeah. And, and that's the the way i use bar path as well and this applies for actually all of the lifts is i almost all exclusively use it as a marker for explaining the faults in the system and what they look like you know like mm -hmm. in a in a bench press like you said that bar path is probably because you lost your shoulders here's how we're going to work on being better at securing your shoulder position in the bottom and holding it as you press but you can see the bar doing this, which to me says this is what's happening up or down the chain. Mm -hmm. Same idea with like a deadlift. The, that bar moves horizontally away from you off the floor. You're probably not tight enough through your upper back, all of those sort of things. But again, it's it's an indicator of some system, systemic fault as opposed to the outcome that I'm trying to look for. Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy because it's something that you know you can get an app for and and it can auto track you like so people want to latch on to this idea of being able to like measure and manage technique in a really data heavy kind of way that is a rabbit hole that i've fucking gone down as well <laughs> it's, mm. and it's just not very effective when it comes to actually getting it right because like you said it's all based on this idea of reverse engineering things the mm. best way to build it is to understand the fundamentals of the movement itself and be able to layer the system on top of that as opposed to the other way around for sure what about touch point on the chest where, sh where should the bar touch i think again it's it's a result of your grip width your arm length the arched that you get through your upper back all of those sort of factors that come into where you're gonna where you, that bar's gonna touch i probably don't want your wrists to be too far in front of your elbows in that bottom position because i think at that point you've let it sink a little bit too low beyond that i think there's no hard and fast rule from my standpoint like for mm -hmm. my bench i have a reasonably big arch and a massive gut or a slightly less massive gut but it's still a massive gut that means there's an advantage to touching much lower than 
someone who perhaps doesn't have a rotund belly like mine. So I think mm-hmm. trying to give you a hard and fast point for it's this many degrees below your fucking nipple line or something like that <laughs> it is hard to talk about. Also, yeah. some people have real saggy nipples. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to me, the, the answer to this is just the same as the last question. It's like it's, it's, a direct, re, it's a direct reflection of the mechanics. And ideally, if we start with the bar in a balanced position, our arms are going to be straight up and down. The most efficient on paper bar path is going to be straight line. So the touch point is going to be directly under where the bar is starting over your chest. However... If you're missing part of your scapular movement, if you can't depress your scaps, if you're missing some external rotation, if you're missing the ability to create torque, if you're losing stuff through your wrists, if you're doing all this other stuff, the bar might touch in a funny position. Um, And so, like, again, you can see how people reverse engineer to be like, oh, all these other people who do good benches touch here, let's touch here. That can actually lead a lifter astray. Or if a lifter is setting up the process, but going into a relaxed position at the bottom they might touch differently and guiding them where to touch might actually help the mechanics it's a, it's an interesting one because like the ideal the gold standard versus the practical application there's a little bit of um uh there's a little bit of clash between them sometimes and that's where i think it, it pays as a coach to be and as an athlete uh, to be open to experimenting with positions and understanding the fundamentals first but also not being married to them being perfect all the time because mm-hmm. like the idea of perfection as i said before doesn't exist it, the perfect rep just means you probably had a little bit more left in the tank and we can probably put a little bit more on there because that's how the process works and that's the that's the fucking carrot in front of you that everyone's chasing on the treadmill of being a powerlifter. not that anyone spends any time on a treadmill let's be honest um it's it's constantly chasing more weight on the bar and sacrificing your or trying to reverse engineer that process rather than understanding the fundamentals and building on them over time is i think uh something that a lot of people struggle with the other thing in in a similar vein that i was going to talk about was uh like elbow position relative to forearm position because that's another thing that i think is again a result of the mechanics of the thing the the process itself but one that's really regularly fucked by a lot of people because so many people are still stuck on this idea that you need to be aggressively tucking your elbows in a raw mm-hmm. bench press and for anyone that hasn't had the pleasure slash mostly misery of bench pressing in a bench shirt you've probably never felt the feeling of like actually being able to get to your chest because you've aggressively tucked your elbows towards your hips. And for anyone else, the way I describe this, and you see a lot of people do it who've been cued into aggressively tucking their elbows, they end up in that big chicken dance position on their touch point and then just regularly miss the bench right off their chest Hmm. is to like put them in a push-up position and again, give them an appreciation for what trying to do a push-up does in that position. Because suddenly they're like trying to do this massive tricep extension push-up that just doesn't work at all. And yeah, it's not a perfect one-for-one transfer, but it's a really useful way of being able to show people how that feels and and how it's going to be different when you're in a a better position. And it's the same as like that band pull-apart drill that we were talking about last time. You see a lot of people sort of chicken wing into that position. Same idea. It's all of these things are, uh, yeah, results of the process, not the outcomes themselves. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the elbows are just the knees on squats. Like we don't want the yeah. knees to go out. We don't want them to go in. We want yeah. to control the hips and where the knees go is a reflection of what's happening at the hips. The difficult thing with, with shoulders is how much more control we have over the actual location of the joint. Yes. Um, and, also, and also the fact that we can um, sort of, th- there's more uh, opportunity for breakdown due to inherent weaknesses that happen in bench press. So um, for example, a lot of people who are new to the gym and haven't had a lot of pressing experience in general will tend to way over tuck will tend to like be poor in internal rotation versus someone who's been doing non-stop pressing like bro lifting for ages has a really hard time in the opposite direction and there's yeah. um they're variables that we need to manipulate as coaches to land people into what we perceive to be the right position um can we also really quickly throw out fucking uh, bench grip with the joint stacking bullshit people talking about your wrist should be over your elbow like, I mean, again, I can understand the logic. I can understand how people arrive here. Yeah, you can see the reverse engineering path that they got down. Yeah, but it's so, so silly. Yeah. So silly. It's such an incomplete view of of how bench press works. Um, it's, I mean, it's the same as saying, let's go sh- straight shins on deadlift and squat, you know, to for ground reactive transfer force, <laughs> Newton's law stuff. It's like, if... If the power was coming directly from the elbow, it would make sense to have it coming, uh, you know, to be under the wrist like that. But it's not coming from there. It's coming from the shoulder. And so, like, why are we going to increase a moment arm there uh, if we can decrease it and make it more efficient? It doesn't make any more sense. The hard thing with bench press as well, in terms of grip width, is the wider you go, the more demand there is on you being able to control the joint. The closer you go, the more automatic stability there is, but the further the joint has to go through range. So it's a different stability demand in either position, but there's still like this increased demand and finding the happy medium for most people is is the challenge. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who get into powerlifting, certainly a lot of people I've seen, have often defaulted to going too wide because they've discovered powerlifting, discovered the concept of manipulating your position to reduce range of motion and then chased that as the gold standard as mm. opposing as opposed to chasing the strongest position for them. And for some people, it's about gradually moving your grip a little bit wider. And for others, it's about coming the other way. Hmm. Um, and, and like with touch point, like with elbow position, all of those sort of things, there's no gold standard for what is best. There are the confines of the competition environment or well, max legal grip is index fingers on the rings of a 81 centimeter power bar. Um, but beyond that, you can be pretty much anywhere inside of that. And if it works for you, it works for you. That's not to say there isn't a potentially a better position for you to be in, in a, from a long-term standpoint. And I think this is sometimes the, the cycle that people get into when it comes to justifying their own technical bullshit is saying, oh, well, this is the strongest position for me. That can be a cop-out for not accepting that there is, in fact, a stronger position for you or potentially a stronger uh-huh. position for you in the long term. Uh-huh. So when it comes to grip with experimenting with a little bit wider and a little bit narrower is probably beneficial in the long run because it's going to help you as a, especially as a beginner intermediate lifter, doing a wide variety of grip angles of pressing types. All of these things are going to help you develop an understanding of what is working best for you right now and what's potentially going to work better for you in the future. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So 
I'm a. This is going to make me sound cooked, but I I As believe that to all that other stuff that you say <laughs> that doesn't at all make you sound like that. I believe in in lifting that you know every coach has a gold standard and every coach is getting their lifters to achieve what their version of the gold standard is. They're trying to teach every lifter to do the same thing, um, and that a lot of people will um, convince themselves that there's more individual differences than there are. Uh, by saying the word individual in reality they're just trying to get them to do the same movement the same animal doing the same movement there are only two variables that we account for with every single individual and those two variables are foot placement and hand placement everything else we teach the same or we're working towards the same thing and so like people who come and are like i've tried wide grip benching it doesn't work i've tried putting my hands there it doesn't work it's like no you've moved your hands wider but you haven't satisfied the principle that we're trying to achieve. Let's yeah. try it again. This is like saying I've tried every diet and it doesn't work. Or um, if you follow I've Bryce- tried pulling sumo and it doesn't work for me. Yeah, if you follow Bryce Lewis, Bryce Lewis made this really long-winded video on like technique should be self-organizing. And um, he used himself as an example switching to low bar. It's like you put the bar lower on your back. It doesn't mean you switch to low bar. You know, there's a, there's a whole engagement process that goes with that. And if you don't satisfy it, it's going to feel like shit. There's a whole engagement process that comes with setting your shoulders when you're performing a bench. And if you don't satisfy that, when you go wide, your shoulders are exposed. Of course, it's going to feel like absolute dog shit. And that's where, where people, most people experience it. They're like, every time I go wide, I get injured. Every time I go wide, my shoulders hurt. It's like, that's just because you're taking your grip out wide and then, you know, just benching like crazy instead of engaging the principle that we're trying to achieve at that particular joint yeah and so much of that comes from new relatively inexperienced lifters discovering the concept of technique modification for the purpose of range of motion decrease because yes. that's like everyone talks about oh well power to squat with a wide stance because it's reducing the range of motion it's bench pressing with an arch to reduce and like all of these things are part of the process partly true <laughs> but again they're not the only piece of the puzzle yeah. like you can't just squat fucking toes touching the monolift and reduce your range of motion and hope for the best. I tried it. doesn't work very well. <laughs> you probably get a lot of reds, squat really high for a while, and that's fine. Amazing. Um, but, yeah, I think that needs to be a more prominent message in the way powerlifting coaches talk to new and, and intermediate level lifters is to, to dispel the myth of range of motion reduction being the gold standard for technique improvement. Because it's in reality, it's not. The gold standard for technique improvement is consistency, first and foremost, and then being able to find, over time, the strongest position for you. And for some people, that means taking one or two steps backwards in terms of uh, actual load on the bar to relearn the skills. Mm. But over time, you'll very quickly get that back. The the irony of the, um, you know, the range of motion thing... Um, especially on bench you see it in the other lifts um not so much squats but definitely in sumo deadlifts but in especially in bench is that people who can maximize um maximize uh, their position to decrease the range of motion as as best they can tend to rapidly progress and then hit a wall that they never go past because yes. the underlying issues that they have um never get addressed and so like they get a boost because they reduce the range of motion, but they still run into the same thing that's slowing them down. And reducing the range of motion is a is a fast track to doing that. Like people stop using their shoulders as effectively. People lose a lot of like just raw upper body strength from, you know, spending so much time of their benching 
essentially mm. quarter benching. Yeah, not um, pressing through a full range of motion. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I'm not a big believer in strength ratios. You know, some people will be like, if you back squat this, you, you should be able to front squat that. Yeah, I don't, I don't like believe that in any of that shit. But as a general litmus test, you should be able to bench uh, dumbbell bench press about 50% of your bench max for like a comfortable six to eight reps. So if you bench 200, 50% of that is 150 kilos per hand. You should be pretty good with that. You know, yeah, and what reasonable. what I've seen anecdotally is that the people that have these ridiculous, the people that I've coached who have these ridiculous positions have this massive disparity between what they can bench and what they can actually do upper body strength wise. And one way that we've been able to fast track their progress is to just like focus on the because, you know, they've come to me with like, oh, my bench has been stuck at this for ages. It's like. It's because you're not benching anymore. You're just yeah, literally relying on this range of motion. You've stopped getting stronger and you've yeah. just practiced bench pressing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You've, you've gone so far down the skill route um, and missed a lot of the just like raw pressing strength that you need. And if you can apply that, if you can apply better control plus more strength into the same advantageous position, poor, that's a fucking double whammy there. That's amazing. Yeah. Exactly. And often it's those sort of things like spending a bit of time focusing on some of those longer ranges of motions or more isolated movements, other things that are going to help remove or not remove, but certainly remedy parts of the issues around like elbows and shoulders Mm. and those sort of things aching and so sometimes what it ends up meaning is you're doing less actual bench press but then when you go back to bench pressing it feels fucking amazing and you're suddenly way fucking stronger exactly exactly i think oh yeah no no sorry you continue because i was going to round us out and then talk about what we're going to do next time Oh, I was just going to say, you see exactly the same thing with people with super upright sumos that do sumo forever. Their squat starts to suffer because they spend hardly any time in a like bent forward position. Their sumo starts to suffer. Give them conventional for ages. Go back to sumo. It's way better and their squat's way better as well. Same and thing. The, the biggest sumo deadlift I ever hit was after spending like three months chasing stiff bar tens in a Ugh. conventional deadlift beltless. Yep. And then I did like eight weeks of sumo and pulled a fucking 30 kilo PB because yep. I just, the, my squat and my sumo deadlift were the same fucking thing. Yeah. And then I went to actually doing some real hinging and suddenly got way stronger. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say, I think that's a good place for us to cut this episode and then next week talk a little bit more about assistance exercises, options for both people like we've talked about who are super technical but running into these walls and perhaps newer lifters and give some options around that sort of assistance lifting and maybe talk about doing rows and how push-pull ratios are a waste of fucking time. Sounds good. Excellent. Goodbye, friends. See ya.